This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Hazel's Story, an epic saga podcast. We're here to dive into the panels and pages of Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples' comic book masterpiece, unpacking the amazing characters, themes, and weirdness in this grand space opera. My name's Abu. And I'm Alan. And Alan, we're back on the grind after all the excitement of chapter 55 last week. I'm so excited. We're diving into chapters 10, 11, and 12 this week, which completes volume two and the second story arc of Saga. Uh, if you skipped our last spoilerific episode, the special quick reaction to the new Saga Chapter 55 that came out January 26th, welcome back to the show. We promise once you get all the way through Saga, you'll want to go back and listen to that because uh, we had some fun last week. Yeah, yeah, the hype was very, very real. But enough about Chapter 55. We're here to talk about 10 through 12, so let's jump in. First, let's take care of some housekeeping, though. Right off the bat, A spoiler notice. This episode, like all of our deep dive read-along episodes are, will be spoiler-free. We will only be covering chapters 10 through 12 today and nothing beyond that point, so that if you are diving into Saga for the very first time, you have nothing to worry about. And if you're revisiting the story like us, then hang tight, because we're going to be diving deep into all the tiny details you might have missed on previous rereads. Absolutely. And We also love to hear from our listeners. Uh, We've been seeing the show grow, and it's been really exciting to watch. If you have any ideas, thoughts, reactions to anything that we talk about, or to even just like how it feels to be reading this book along with other people, send us an email, hazelsstorypodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, hazelsstorypodcast at gmail.com. There's two S's in a row there on Hazel's story. And anything you send us, we would love to include on a future episode. Definitely. Okay, so the game plan for today, like always, we're going to start with a brief summary of today's reading and then jump into some key thematic takeaways and finally wrap up by sharing our favorite panels and quotes. So chapter 10 opens up with, uh, what, how does this work again? I, sorry, after last week. Oh, right, right, right. Chapter summary, chapter summary. All right, so chapter 10 starts with what we quickly figure out is a flashback in the past. Marco is shirtless working on sort of a chain gang as a prisoner of war, while Alana is reading the D. Oswald Heiss romance novel to him instead of, you know, guarding him. So something has changed in their relationship. She's not hitting him in the face with the butt of a rifle anymore. (laughs) And they get into discussing Heist's novel and how this, you know, seemingly sort of second-rate, cheap gas station grocery store romance novel actually has a hidden, deeper anti-war message. Marco then reveals that he's actually about to be transferred to a black site, which is apparently someplace no one ever comes back from. Again, this war is real dark and a lot of really shady, awful shit is happening. Alana considers this very briefly and then with a really, really great shot, like shoots his chains to get him free. (laughs) And she says, quote, just go. I'll buy you some time, which is easily the most badass thing I've ever said. Amazing. I love that. It's so good, right? 
It's so, so good for her to like, there's that self-awareness. I love every part of it. Yeah. And then they kiss and Hazel's narration reads over it. Yeah, dad always had a way with the ladies. I love it. I love that Alana is also spending most of these pages just ogling at Marco, at shirtless, ripped Marco? He's cut, Alan. I mean, he doesn't look like a prisoner of war. Like he's looking pretty <laughs> healthy, but uh, Fiona Staples had some fun. He looks like he's on the cover of a romance novel, honestly, which I feel like is intentional on their part. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. All right, in the next scene, we jump back to the present day where Marco and his mother are still searching for Isabel on this giant egg planetoid. They come across some scary looking midwives. They have these like upside down faces, terrifying stuff, and are saved by a flaming gorilla that scares them off. And it turns out this giant flaming gorilla that tells the midwives to flee in terror, bitches, is actually just an illusion from our girl, Isabel. We found her. Isabel's introduction is incredible. She says, quote, just so you know, this is the third worst babysitting gig I've ever had, end quote, which <laughs> raises a lot of questions about the first so two <laughs> and makes me think she perhaps lost half of her body in one of those gigs. <laughs> so good. The moment of levity passes, however, because at that very moment, the planet begins to hatch and the crew decides they got to get out of here stat. And then we cut quick back to the rocket ship tree where Alana is freaking out because she's having one of those like early parenthood moments where she thinks that she broke her child somehow because a piece of her has fallen off, which then Marco's dad Barr assures her, no, 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 that's just the umbilical cord falling off. Your daughter has a belly button, which I can say our daughter's umbilical cord hung on there for like two weeks and it looks real gross and then it falls off. So totally, totally get that. Oh, that's a real thing. Oh, yeah, totally. No, the belly button like stays on there for like a little while and then eventually it falls off and it's it's oh. it, like definitely freaks you out. <laughs> okay. Reading this, I was like, oh, that's a weird fictional thing that Brian and Fiona came up with. Nope. nope. It's def <laughs> definitely a real thing. When you bring your baby home, they still have part of the umbilical cord hanging off. Then eventually it just kind of like falls off. Oof. Wow. However, this moment of family bonding and sharing is interrupted because all of a sudden Marco and his mom and Isabel reappear they like port back into the ship alana is super excited to see marco it's great however that is then interrupted because the shell hatches <laughs> and there are pieces of like what alana initially thinks are asteroids but then they're like no those are pieces of a shell and they're like what the fuck is happening bar says what in the world and then we get this massive amazing depiction of what it has hatched out of this planet, which is this giant lizardy thing. I don't know. It's terrifying. But before we can even like think about what the fuck is that, the alarms start to go off in the ship and everybody's like, oh God, what now? And that's an alarm telling them that the Will's ship has just, I assume, like come out of warp or something very much nearby. Mm -hmm. And so now they're literally stuck between a bounty hunter and a giant planetoid-sized space lizard. <laughs> a rock in a hard place, I'd say. Sure. <laughs> One quick note about this scene before we move on, Alan. Barr offers Alana this piece of advice that I'm wondering if it resonated with you. He said, quote, don't be so hard on yourself. It takes a lifetime to learn how to be a parent. And by the time you finally start to figure things out, 
dot, 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 and he trails off. And I felt like that was a pretty powerful thing for him to say. The previous generation sort of imparting this wisdom on Alana, who's freaking out about a apparently very normal umbilical cord thing. Oh, totally normal. And yeah, that's the entire first three months of having a baby is just full of moment after moment of that, like feeling like you're blind and wandering around in a room that you can't figure anything out in. <laughs> and by the time you finally start to figure things out, yeah, your kid's all grown up and they're off having their own kids. Right, right. If your goal on this podcast is to convince me never to have kids, Alan, you're well <laughs> on your way. All right, moving on to the next scene. We are over at the whale ship and he panics because he realizes this giant thing that just hatched is something called a time suck. And shouts to Brian Kavon for the little bit of cheekiness here. This little <laughs> baby that hatched is a time suck. Big time suck. Big. It's literally <laughs> a gigantic time suck. A gigantic time suck. I love it. Love it. Now, Gwendolyn doesn't want to turn back in this moment. She is insistent that they continue the hunt. And she does a thing. I've seen enough movies to know this. You never just hit a button on a ship that you are a guest on. But she does exactly that. She pushes a button and launches heat-seeking missiles out into the void. They don't actually see the rocket ship tree. She just launched the heat-seeking missiles, hoping it would strike something nearby. In an absolutely brilliant move, Alana actually orders the rocket ship tree to fly right at the missiles. And they bounce off the hull which knocked these missiles off course right into the giant time suck. That obviously sets off the time suck, gets real fucking pissed, and starts shooting these black wispy things out of its sockets, out of its eyes and its mouth, presumably, right at the will ship, which rips a section of the hull from his ship. I don't even want to say this next part out loud. Blowing Lion Cat out into the cold vacuum of space. My heart stopped. Oh, and this was the this is the final page of chapter 10. That's how chapter 10 ends, is Lion yeah. Cat sucked out into space. So like <laughs> you're reading this chapter by chapter and you're like, dear God, no, Lion Cat. I, it, yeah. Oh my, yeah, incredible stuff. Moving on to chapter 11. Luckily, we don't have to wait to see what happens to Lion Cat. Oh, wait, yeah, we do, because we start the next chapter with another flashback, yeah. <laughs> which is, uh, once again, you were expecting to find out the fate of a character, and instead you get something much different, yeah. which in this case is uh, Alana and Marco just like fully in the throes of making love, having sex, fucking yep. whatever you want to call it, yeah. in including in this first All panel, of the one above. Of one of my favorite things that I hadn't even thought of, but clearly Brian and Fiona did, is that... Marco's giant horns would be great handholds during sex because Alana is like <laughs> gripping them like handles. So cool. Glad somebody thought that all the way That gives through. a new meaning to love handles, but sure, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> no. No, the joke is done. You can cut that. Oh, I would never. They finish having sex and then Alana gets freaked out because she's realized that Marco has finished inside of her. And then- mm -hmm seemingly and understandably gets freaked out because one, they're on the run and it's not real great time for them to be having a baby. And two, who knows between their two species if they can even have a baby. And Marco gets kind of idealistic about it while Alana is being more pragmatic. Alana says, quote, look, when the two of us are making love, starting a family with you seems like the smartest, sanest idea in the universe, but it's not. 
She also makes reference to Sexy Alana, which is apparently like an alternate persona. Sexy Alana is, quote, <laughs> a crazy person. Sexy Alana is obsessed with her nipples and uses the word dick unironically. She's not to be trusted, which is truly quite delightful. I like this alternate persona of Sexy Alana. And I feel like we might see her again. I'm sure we will. They finish their conversation by turning to something that all couples maybe sometimes talk about is what they would name their future children. And mm -hmm. Marco says that if he had a son, he'd want to call him Bar, which Alana then makes fun of, saying <laughs> like a tavern or a soap. And Marco, of course, says, my father's name is Bar. And she's like, oh, oh I love it. Oops. <laughs> and we get some classic levity before we shift back to the engine room on the ship with the time suck right outside and missiles going off. Things are tense in the present day, folks. Clara and Marco run down to the engine chamber of the rocket ship tree. We got to get out of this time suck. The gravity is pulling us in. We don't have enough juice. And she tries to convince him to use the crash helms to portal himself and his family out of there and to leave his parents behind. For a split, split second, we think that Marco might agree to this plan, but he doesn't. He instead tosses these very pricey crash helms. Remember, they sold their house to buy these crash helms. Tosses them into the flames, which gives the tree the NOS fuel style boost that it needs to get them out of the time suck. Meanwhile, up top, Barr and Alana and Isabel have their own issues to deal with because this NOS fuel is too much for the ship to handle and the rocket ship tree is starting to crack under the pressure. Barr saves the day by using a bit of magic. He sends out these yellow glowy strings of magical yarn to hold the ship together, allowing them to escape the time suck. But as we know, Alan, magic comes at a cost, and Barr falls to his knees, clutching his chest. Gut-wrenching moment. Meanwhile, as that's all unfolding, we have to wonder... What the fuck is happening with Lion Cat? Yes. Back over on the Will's ship, you get this amazing sequence where clearly, and I love this like little bit of like science fiction reality, the vacuum of space has flooded the Will's ship so no one can talk. Yeah. So you get this like amazing wordless series of panels of the Will leaping out into space, grabbing Lion Cat and using his like super awesome lance to like lance back into the ship, pull himself back in. Gwendolyn casts a spell to like seal over the hole in the ship. And then the will tells the ship to go to high speed and they like zip, zip, zip away. Then after they've gotten far enough away, apparently I have to assume because the time suck was distracted by like trying to eat the rocket ship tree because they'd hit it with the missile. That's why the whale ship is able to fly away. Yeah. Ends up that that was good for somebody at least. <laughs> Then, so after they've gotten everybody back safe on the ship, the Will confronts Gwendolyn as Slave Girl is, is now asleep because she started all this by launching a rocket she shouldn't have done. Right. He does, however, reveal, though, that when he was out there saving Lion Cat, that he did see the rocket ship tree, that he, like, knew it was there and he saw the rocket ship tree. So now they know that Alana, Marco, and Hazel are on this rocket ship tree. Because remember, before they just had a feeling based on Slave Girl's necklace, like knowing where things go. Now they have firm proof that they're in this rocket ship tree and they're on the hunt. Yeah. Oof. Scary stuff. Meanwhile, back on the rocket ship tree, Clara and Marco come up from the engine room and walk in on what I imagine must just be the kind of scene that makes your stomach drop. 
They walk in on a panicked Isabel and Alana performing CPR on Barr, who's on the ground. And in this absolutely horrific close-up panel, Alana looks at Marco and tells him that Barr is dead, which triggers a memory for Marco. We flash back to a young Marco and a young Barr speaking in their native blue Esperanto language of wreath. Barr is teaching young Marco how to ride this giant cricket. (laughs) I learned how to ride a bicycle at that age. Marco learned how to ride a cricket. Tomato, tomato. I love that it's a cricket like with a sort of sheriff theme. It's got like a silver star on the side. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like kind of like a pony, I guess. That's like, yeah. It's like the wreath version of a pony. So it's like, it makes me wonder like, what's the adult size version of that look like? For real, for real. Well, unfortunately at the moment, little Marco is having trouble even with the small size version of the cricket and he's getting frustrated. If you translate the Esperanto, he says things like, quote, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. And his father tells him, quote, Marco, listen to me. You have to be brave before you can be good, end quote, which I loved. Young Marco in this flashback then tries once again, and this time is successful in riding the cricket, and both father and son cheer as the flashback cuts back to present day. Just chills. Just like the most the most amazing example of like show don't tell, right? Like you could have had Marco have some like big soliloquy about everything that his father meant to him and all of that. But instead you get this like pure memory moment of how his father was able to embolden him to be brave and to take these brave actions and like create that inside of him. And it just makes it so much more sad and so much more just like relatable and intense. It does that thing that so often in this book happens where something fantastical is a perfect allegory for something very, very like normal that everybody might go through. Whether it's riding a grasshopper or riding a bike, there's those familial relationships that anybody can see for themselves. And we get that As the chapter ends, where it cuts back from Marco's flashback, and Alana's trying to comfort Marco, and she tries and fails in a way that's very real, right? When you have a partner who's in pain, and you try to reach out, and you try to fix them, and you try to help them, but sometimes there's just nothing you can do, especially when they're in grief. But Isabel smartly holds her back and says, quote, don't. Right now, he just needs to be with his people. And Marco goes over to his mom, who's holding... Uh, their father's body, and then Hazel picks up the narration to wrap everything up for us, saying, The next morning, they cremated my grandfather in the belly of our ship. I still have a scrap of the outfit he made for me. These days, I use it as a bookmark. Wow. Which is one of the lines, I didn't pick this as my favorite line for later, but it's one of the lines I think about all the time from this story. Yeah. Of just how perfectly they weave together You forget that the narration is from a character who's also in the story and just how perfectly it's weaving it all in and around and back. And like you see that, oh, Hazel has a relationship with her grandfather, even though she never really met him because she had these clothes that he'd made for her right before he died. And she keeps it and uses it as a bookmark, which is just like, I don't know. It's the writing, everything. And that's the end of chapter 11. Yeah, powerful stuff. I simply cannot believe how you read this month to month, Alan. (laughs) Well, and so this is this is one year in, right? Like, this is one year into these coming out month to month. And like at this point, everybody who was reading this book was addicted. Yeah. And the buzz is building because of things like this, because of the way that each chapter is ending. And because like all you want to know is, holy fuck, what happens next? 
And you get to find out what happens next in the very first scene of chapter 12, which opens with another flashback. But this time we're flashing back to an experience of Prince Robot IV, who is in what we see is a very, very intense battle moment. This Mm -hmm. is like right in the thick of a battle on some planet between Landfall and Wreath soldiers. And a Landfallian soldier is screaming for a medic as he cradles Prince Robot IV, who's been injured. And this is maybe, I think, the first time we've actually seen what being in the thick of battle in this war looks like. We saw that one shot of them looking over a battle like from above. But this is like, oh, this battle is gruesome and bloody. And Prince Robot IV is bleeding out this blue blood all over the ground. And so this medic runs over who is, because of course, a... A uh, full human-sized anthropomorphized mouse creature, and the mouse <laughs> medic runs over and immediately starts tending to Prince Robot the Fourth, and then like <laughs> jabs Prince Robot with some kind of mechanical device. We assume because he's a robot that like stops his wound from bleeding, and then it quickly takes a turn though because a soldier nearby screams for everyone to put their gas masks on because the enemy has apparently released poison gas, which is. I guess as much as it would be in our world, a war crime, gas in most circumstances is against the Geneva Conventions, right? It's not something we could do because it's inhumane, but it's happening anyway. And so Prince Robot, having just had his life saved by this medic, is like, medic, put your mask on. Prince Robot doesn't need a gas mask because he's a robot. He doesn't breathe, I guess. Uh, But we find out very quickly just the sort of ranking of priority of the various conscripts in this war because this mouse medic didn't get a gas mask. And so all Prince Robot can do is stand there and watch as the gas affects the mouse incredibly quickly to the point where the mouse explodes from every part of its body and the exploding like viscera gets all over Prince Robot. And then we understand, oh, this is present day. This is like a PTSD nightmare that Prince Robot was having, which is interrupted by a call that he was getting from Landfall Secret Intelligence. That's right. Our boy, Agent Gale himself, your favorite, Alan. He's back. He's calling to check in (laughs) about this mission. He's such a weasel. (laughs) He's such a weasel. (laughs) The thing that gets me is his hair. He's got this like (laughs) douchey frat boy haircut. It's 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 every it's every talent agent I've ever had to interact with in my life has this haircut, and that's why I think they're kind of like he's a secret agent, but I also feel like they're kind of he's like an agent agent. I don't know. But yeah. maybe I'm reading too much into it. Absolutely not. I think you're spot on. Either way, Agent Agent Gale is calling to check in about the mission that Prince Robot is on. What's going on? What's taking so long? What are you doing? Where are you? We learned that Gale is actually calling from the robot kingdom where he is visiting ahead of the Landfallian president who is starting to question the robot kingdom's loyalty to the war effort. And this is one of our earliest peaks into the politics of these two nations. We haven't visited boardrooms or been introduced to senators or presidents in this story, but there's still a very complicated political backdrop to this story about a family on the run. And this is a little peek into what's going on behind the scenes in this war. Gail then ends the call on this very not so subtle threat about Prince Robot's wife and unborn child, basically doing the old would be a damn shame if something were to happen to them if you Mm -hmm. didn't do your job shtick Mm -hmm. and hangs up. Call ended. 
What a dick. What an agent. Such, such like, I mean, it, the whole thing is just like, oh, you have the tiniest bit of empathy for Prince Robot the Fourth that, like, oh, he's caught in the midst of all of this. Like, even though he's royalty and even though he's got this giant hand cannon, he's also being held hostage by all these forces that are totally out of his control. But we don't get long to consider that because Prince Robot the Fourth's ship has arrived on this planet, Quietus, where he's been trying to go find D. Oswald Heist. And he lands and he walks out of his ship and he comes across, I, I don't know what else to describe, but as- The a, cutest a, little a, button. <laughs> <laughs> it's a small seal in yellow overalls walking on two legs with- a giant walrus that walks on four legs on land that he's carting around. Yes. And the seal speaks in a very sort of folksy, endearing way and points Prince Robot the Fourth in the direction of D. Oswald Heist, throwing a little bit of helpful information Prince Robot the Fourth's way, which is he asks him, quote, did you bring him any bottles? Mr. Heist <laughs> likes it when the ladies bring him bottles, which shows the kind of visitors that apparently this writer is getting. They're usually ladies, and they're usually bringing him alcohol. Should I be writing? I think I'm in the wrong career. <laughs> Either way, in the next scene, we cut to D. Oswald Heist, who hears a knock at the door and goes to answer it, thinking it's just another admirer looking for another autograph. And it turns out it's... Prince Robot the Fourth. He questions Heist about Alana and Marco. And when Heist says he doesn't know what he's talking about, the discussion then turns to the topic of Heist's novel, the same novel that Prince Robot has been reading, the same novel that Alana was such a big fan of. Heist plays this all off. He says that it's just some shitty book that he wrote for a quick paycheck, but Robot the Fourth is not sold. Quote, you're being coy, Heist. This work is obviously a thinly veiled treatise on radical pacifism, a compelling, if not entirely persuasive, call to inaction, end quote. Which I love this. I love this. It's sort of a running gag in this book now that like it's because we've even gotten to read some of the text from this book, which it's just a romance novel, but <laughs> I don't think there's any like deep subtext that it's a thinly veiled treatise on radical pacifism, but somehow everybody who reads it thinks it is. Yeah. And so we're left to sort of wonder as an audience, like, is it? Or is it just like everybody's reading too much into it? And Heist even a little later in this conversation throws a little nod to that where he says, quote, well, you know what they say, the reader is the final collaborator. Cheers for doing the heavy lifting, sort of implying that thing that all writers wrestle with, which is when their readers add extra meaning to their work that they never yeah. thought of. I don't know if any of you who are listening or if you, Abu, ever read something in, say, like a high school English class and you were like, oh, this was the author's intent and you make up a whole bunch of bullshit that yep. no author ever possibly thought of. They were just like, <laughs> I was just writing about, you know, birds in a tree. I don't know where you got to that it was a metaphor. Right. I'm sure George Lucas has a lot of thoughts on this topic. <laughs> yes. Sometimes <laughs> a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> totally. So this tense conversation and this tense scene continues. Prince Robot IV spots a photo of Heist's son on the wall. And through some questioning, we learn that Heist's son is dead. He died in the war after he enlisted with Landfall. 
And as the conversation is seemingly wrapping up and winding down, Prince Robot the Fourth is headed towards the door. He turns and asks one more question. He asks Heist what battle his son died in. And this is the moment where Heist reveals that his son didn't die in any battle. He came home from the war and he hung himself. And Robot the Fourth responds, quote, and this is awful, ugh, quote, so your coward of a child tops himself, and now you think, what, that all veterans of just conflict are shell-shocked maniacs? End quote. Which we as the reader obviously know is some real heavy projecting here from Prince Robot the Fourth. <sighs> right. He's obviously overly defensive because this is the very thing that he's currently dealing with as well. This also triggers heist. He gets pissed off. He pulls out a gun, points it at Prince Robot IV, who turns on his hand cannon and shoots Heist in the knee. Things are escalating at an exponential rate. Yeah, I thought this scene was over. Robot was headed to the door. Clearly not. <laughs> Prince Robot then sort of challenges Heist and taunts him that he's like, you know what? I don't believe you. I think you really are a pacifist and you're, this whole book is about radical pacifism. I'm going to give you this pen. I want you to stab me in the neck with it. I have a weakened circuit from an old war wound right here in my neck. If you just stab me with it, you'll likely kill me. Do it. Do it right now or I'll kill you. And then Heist can't do it. Yeah. He apparently really does believe in radical pacifism. He throws the pen away. Prince Robot IV pulls up a chair and basically decides, okay, I've got my guy. I'm just going to wait for Alana and Marco to show up because clearly they're in league with this actor all trying to like stop the war. Yeah. Which is weird because it sounds like a crazy conspiracy theory, but it might also be true. Yeah. None of that matters though because the chapter ends on this amazing reveal. The camera then pans up the stairs to the second floor of this lighthouse where Heist lives and who do we find there? Oh, my God. Marco, Hazel, Alana, Marco's mom, and Isabel, all hiding at the top of the stairs, ready to take on Prince Robot IV, who comes up. And Hazel's narration informs us, Prince Robot IV was dead wrong about my family coming to Quietus anytime soon. We'd already been there a week. Uh... And that's it. That's how the chapter ends. That's how the story arc ends. It's like every part of it is like twist, turn. I love the way this story plays with timelines and timing. It's this mad race against time for everybody going from place to place, but you never sort of know who's getting anywhere when. Yeah. And it's like, oh yeah, of course. They could have totally gotten to Quietus ahead of Prince Robot because their ship was going super fast from the crash helm. So right. it's awesome. I love it. Uh, I can't believe we have to wait. Yeah, another gut punch. I actually distinctly remember finishing volume two, getting to that reveal on the final page and feeling my stomach drop. Just the absolute crazy reveal that they have been there for a week and that Prince Robot the Fourth is right downstairs. Ugh. This final sequence, actually, the tension, it really reminded me of like a Tarantino conversation scene. You know how Quentin Tarantino is just so good at these long drawn out scenes where people are not questioning each other, but actually totally questioning each other. And it's so stressful and tense and everyone's just like waiting for the pin to drop. Oh, yeah. That's what this conversation between Prince Robot and Heist felt like to me. This like Tarantino-esque 
very stressful scene. Oh, totally, because you know that Prince Robot IV has been super violent before, right? And that he's subject to these like PTSD rages. So you're just like, yeah. oh, he's gonna he's gonna kill this guy. And then to find out that like our main squad of protagonists are all right upstairs, literally up the short little staircase, ready to try and take him on with nothing more than what looks like a little axe and like that that same the lame, little pea shooter like, yeah. <laughs> little pea shooter gun that they have from the very first chapter but they're still carting around it's just the tension but that's where the chapter stops and that's where we're going to stop take a quick break we'll be right back with some takeaways from these chapters plus our favorite panels and quotes All right, friends, welcome back. Let's dive into our takeaways today. And to start off, Alan, let's talk about sex, baby. (laughs) This comic, this story is not going to shy away from sex and sexuality in any way. And if that wasn't apparent in all that sextillion stuff from the previous couple of chapters we've covered, it's very obvious here in today's reading. Mm Mm-hmm. Our characters are sexual beings. They have sexual desires. They act on them. And the crux of this whole story, Hazel being born, is the result of this raw sexual attraction that Marco and Alana have for each other, right? She breaks him out of prison because, well, not just because he's shirtless. They have a connection. But I'm sure that played a significant role. (laughs) It didn't hurt. It didn't hurt. It certainly hurt. didn't hurt. And I just want to take a couple of minutes to talk about the fact that this story is not shy about tough subjects that other stories would maybe not tackle. We've already talked in a previous takeaway about how we are going to see the atrocities of war, and this story is not going to sugarcoat any of that. We see that even today in the chapters. And just like it treats war, it treats sex. Our reading literally starts with shirtless Marco that Alana is thirsting over. We then, in a later chapter, get a very graphic sex scene with lots of nudity that ends in a discussion about semen inside vagina. And while there is a lot of sex and sexuality in this story, none of it comes across as unnecessarily lewd or fanservice-y. It's just how real people have and talk about sex. This is just the reality of it. And that's so refreshing because so much of popular culture, so many of the TV shows and books and comics and video games that we all consume, all of this content, more often than not, many of the characters are these like sexless beings Mm -hmm. that we never actually see express that very human side of them. And... This is a story where, yes, we're in a crazy fantasy universe. Yes, there is an alligator butler who actually showed up in this <laughs> chapter as well. He did. He's there again. <laughs> Shouts to our boy in the background, working hard, earning that paycheck. <laughs> this is a story where sex is normal, and it's fine, and it's a thing that everyone does and desires, just like real life. And I think the quote that sort of solidifies that for me is when... Hazel tells us 
Quote, yeah, yeah. So my mom and dad used to have sex. What, like your parents just willed you into existence? That right there. It's perfect, right? It's this thing that in so much of mostly American sourced popular culture where our characters end up as these like sexless robots and it's all (laughs) comes from this like Protestant, we can't ever talk about sex, like characters don't have sex. It's not a thing that we can talk about. If you go into other cultures, there's a lot more sex that's part of the narratives, but definitely in the dominant culture and pop culture that most of us consume, except for like huge digressions that do get kind of like lewd or porny. Yeah. Like I think of shows like True Blood on HBO or even some of the scenes in Game of Thrones where it's just like, you just put boobs up there because you could, but it didn't really feel like part of the story and it wasn't necessarily natural. This just feels like, yeah, everyone's parents had sex in order to make them. And these characters have and think about sex kind of all the time, like most people do. Yeah. Yeah, it's a perfectly normal thing. And look, yes, this is an opinion, Alan, that you and I have, but we're not alone in this. We're not the only ones who think this because we recently got an email from a listener. Leo from Brooklyn wrote to us and actually commented on this very thing. This is what he had to say about the sexual content he's read so far in Saga. Quote, I haven't found it at all gratuitous or pornographic, Sex and the human body are simply parts of this world in a way that's wholly refreshing. Kids shouldn't read the series, obviously, but I also kind of think this is a way of handling sexuality that's missing from most other media, and I wish I read it when I was younger. Wow. Spot on, Leo. Yeah, thank you so much for that email, Leo, and anyone else listening who has thoughts like this or just even ideas that... You know, we're all thinking these things at the same time. Please write us an email, hazelstorypodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to include your thoughts or emails or even send us a voicemail in a future episode. So I, I love this takeaway. It's it's really true that these are full round characters, fully developed characters that are existing in this universe. And they have real thoughts, desires and feelings, especially about things that maybe we don't normally dig too deep on in our culture things like sex, things like violence, things like grief. So for the second takeaway from today's reading, it's kind of related to that, which Mm -hmm. really what it just comes down to and what's becoming more and more apparent the further along we get in this story is that no character will ever truly be safe from death in this universe or in this book. Yeah. No matter how much maybe the fans love them or how central they seem to the story, any character could be killed at literally any moment. First, we had the stalk who just like surprise got blown away by Prince Robot the Fourth, and now Bar. You know, we knew that he was dying, but I wasn't thinking that he was going to die so soon after just being introduced. And then we have the horror of Lion Cat being flung oh into space, God. where I thought Lion Cat was dead for a whole month while I was reading this book. <laughs> and it's just like, come on, Brian. You can't be so good at building these characters that we relate to and grow to have these relationships with as a reader, and then you just rip them away or come really close. And, yeah, you know, he does that, I think, and maybe this is me becoming that projecting reader, but some part of me has to think he does that because this story is about how war traumatizes everybody Mm -hmm. and how in war anybody can die at any moment. And even the audience feels a part of that trauma in this story through the loss or the near loss of a lot of these characters. 
And I get the feeling that that's not likely to change in the chapters that come following chapter 12. It's truly like each new character now, I'm like, well, how, how long are you going to be around? Like, yeah. D. Oswald Heist just showed up and he's already been shot. <laughs> how many panels does he get in the book before he's shot? And I feel like Brian and Fiona are trying to give us some taste of what it would be like to live in this world where violence is constantly omnipresent because of this war and really, really like make us feel some part of that. Oh, absolutely. I don't think you're reading too much into it at all. In fact, I don't know if you've heard, Alan, but the reader is the final collaborator. So that's us. <laughs> I've read that somewhere. I expect to get credit on Saga chapters from now on. But I agree. I completely agree that no character here is safe. And I am finding myself constantly stressed every time I flip the page that one of my favorite characters, someone that I'm starting to grow attached to, is going to end up shot, stabbed, blown up, gassed. Like there are so many horrific ways we've already seen creatures and people die in this story. And none of our favorite characters are safe. And there have been many examples of that. Well, especially even seeing, you know, these ships seem kind of flimsy, to be honest. Like, you know, one tree. of them's made out of wood. It's a tree. <laughs> like, what's to keep them from being ripped into space at any point, right? Like, space is scary and it will kill you. To be honest, I don't totally get how the Will was able to survive the vacuum of space for, you know, 15 seconds or whatever, but... He seems pretty badass, pretty strong, so I guess he's okay, and maybe his yeah. like special cloak saved him or whatever. But they're they're flying around in space all the time, and there's apparently like giant demon lizard creatures lurking inside of planets. Right. The dangers are omnipresent, and I guess we just have to keep our guard up all the time. All the time. Yeah. Your point about Brian and Fiona making us feel like our characters do in this universe is spot on. I certainly feel like every time I turn the page, something horrific could happen to someone I love. And that is exactly how Marco, Alana, and many of the cast feel day to day. Incredible storytelling. I love it. And also kind of horrifying, which is part of the allure of this story, is that it goes from touching to thoughtful to horrifying, and it just like draws you in. And a big part of that is of course the amazing art and the amazing writing so let's yes. shift to our our wrap up where we're going to talk about our favorite panels and pages abu do you want to start what, what was your favorite panel or your favorite art from this set of chapters so my favorite panel is actually a series of panels i guess it's my turn to cheat i think if we trade <laughs> off every other episode on cheating it's okay it's kosher it seems fine <laughs> so my favorite set of panels from today's reading is actually that completely silent page, page and a half, where we see the Will actually leave his ship and go out and save Lion Cat in the vacuum of space. Before I actually gush about these pages, I just want to put out into the universe that I will never forgive Brian and Fiona for the near heart attack they gave me with that final page. How dare they put Lion Cat in danger, and they better not do it again. So you already pointed this out earlier in our discussion, but these panels are completely silent. And that's because we are in the vacuum of space. The Will ship has been shredded, and 
the air is being sucked out of the ship. And I loved that we even saw in some of the way the panels were colored, how the Will's skin tone is starting to get desaturated as he's going out into the frozen void to go and grab Lion Cat. Just the way that it's drawn and just the fact that there's no dialogue at all really adds to the intensity of the scene and is also scientifically accurate. Love when my fantasy stories are full of science. The last thing I want to say is I genuinely choked up at that sort of large, almost half-page panel of the Will hugging Lion Cat out in the void as he grabs her and then uses his extendo lance to get back to the ship. Something about that page, and perhaps it's because I you know, got a dog that I am now deeply <laughs> attached to within the last 12 months. Something about the way the Will hugs Lion Cat there, risks his life, literally jumps out into the void to save her and bring her back to safety. And of course, the yeah. fact that Lion Cat is now safe in this moment of peril. All of that combined led to this like series of emotions where I just looked over at Koji, my dog, and looked at the panel, and looked at Koji, and looked at the panel, <laughs> and had to genuinely take a moment to center myself. It, something about it was just so beautiful now that I'm a pet owner. For those reasons, these panels were my favorite from today's reading. Beautiful stuff. Well, and I didn't even think about it until you mentioned it just now, but like he doesn't take even a beat before flinging himself out into the vacuum of space after right? Lion Cat, right? Like they could yeah. have just sealed it up and been like, oh, well, this is another one of those casualties to war, but he doesn't, if there's nary a second thought, he jumps out into space after this animal who clearly to him is more than an animal, more than a sidekick. It's a partner. Yep. You know, there's love there that is, is fueling him. Maybe the only love that he now has now that the stalk has died. So Great point. You feel that that intimacy and that intenseness in the way that he hugs Lion Cat as he brings her back into the ship. And it, uh, you're so spot on in, in the way that it's depicted in that series of panels. It's like time stops. And yeah, yeah the, the subtle way that the coloring happens and- you know, you can feel that like, oh, this he's got to do this real quick. And he does it like expertly and quickly and saves both of their lives. And then says like very hoarsely, like for the ship to to go full speed so they can get away. Just the way that Fiona is able to add those extra elements through the coloring on these pages is is one of my favorite things. And actually it leads really well into my favorite panel, which I don't have to cheat this time because it is technically <laughs> one panel. But it is one panel that actually goes two full pages. The reason why is one of my favorite things to see Fiona Staples render visually in this book is any kind of like magic or, or fire. Because so she, she does this book entirely digitally. She doesn't actually use watercolors or paint or there's a lot of other artists that will use physical media to be able to create the visuals they're creating. Fiona does it all digitally, but still is able to evoke this sort of beauty that it's almost like oil paint when she's showing the blue magic or fire in this case, when we see the giant full bleed of the birth of the time suck from the egg planet towards the end of chapter 10. Yeah. She gives it two full pages and there's just like this little ball of magic flames that I guess was once the core of the planet egg. And then there's this like weird, terrifying three-eyed space dragon thing that was curled around it. And it just like, blows your mind as you're like 
at least for me, my eyes just kept scanning the page over and over and over again, taking it all in. And then you see the scale being represented because there's this little tiny rocket ship tree in the bottom left-hand corner of this two-page spread. And you see how huge and giant it is. And it's sort of amorphous and ephemeral, but then it has these really like specifically rendered little claw hands that you can see it's a lizard of some kind, but then its head doesn't really have shape. It's kind of like floaty and sort of like a cloud with these three like floaty cloud eyes. So it's like real in that it's just hatched from an egg like a lizard, but it's sort of cosmic and spacey. And and it just has this this thing where my brain as it's taking it all in thinks a planet can't crack open like an egg that isn't a thing that can happen. But in the way that Fiona renders it, this beautiful painting work of art, my brain totally accepts it. And is just like, oh yeah, no, that's that's what a planet cracking open to give birth to a cosmic terror would look like. Totally <laughs> bought it. And I want to yeah. understand more. What's happening here? Yeah. Like, how does it work? Right? And the last thought I had, because as I was reviewing this for this episode, I was looking at a physical copy at one of the trade paperbacks for volume two. It's that full two-page spread, but it has like the binding in the middle, so you, it kind of bunches together. And it made me want to go back and look at it in digital version, where you got to see the way Fiona actually did it. No crease, full, like beautiful artwork as one contiguous piece of art, at which point I was like, well, do I just need to buy both, both the digital and paper versions of all of this? And I think the answer is yes. I think Fiona and Brian deserve all of our money. So go buy the digital and paper versions of this work because it's so good. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the sense of scale that gets me in this picture. I have my copy flipped open to it right now. And the thing that my eye keeps getting drawn back to is the tiny, tiny, tiny speck of the tree rocket ship in the bottom left corner almost smaller than one of this lizard creature's eyes, than the time sucks eyeballs, is the ship that our heroes are on, which really gives you this almost Dune-esque scale. If you've seen the most recent adaptation of Dune by Denis Villeneuve, similar vibes. Like, the people are tiny, the ships are enormous, and the scale is almost mind-boggling. Hard to wrap your mind around. Beautiful stuff. Okay, Alan, let's wrap up as we always do with our favorite quotes from today's reading. And I'll let you go first. What was your favorite quote from today? This is kind of a long series of lines, but the the payoff at the end is so good. I don't know what else to call it, but a tonal switcheroo that Brian K. Vaughn is so good at. Yeah. Where it starts in one direction, but then he switches it real quick at the end of the line. So it's at the start of chapter 11, Marco and Alana have had sex and Alana is worried because Marco's just come inside her, which he thinks isn't safe because they're fugitives. And then Marco says, even if they're fugitives, they should still get to make their own choices because that's what being free is all about. Then the dialogue goes like this. Alana says, quote, first of all, we're not free. We're hiding on a rooftop on fucking Cleve. And second, are you seriously talking about knocking me up? Because I don't even know if that's possible between our teams. Marco replies, did you even think that what just happened in there, the sex, would be possible? I know it wouldn't be easy, but is there a better symbol for this terrifying new piece that you and I have forged than a child? And then Alana gets really angry and she says, a child isn't a symbol. It's a child. It needs applesauce and play pens <laughs> and an ass load of other things we can't provide where we're on the goddamn lamp. And then this last line from Marco is my, oh my favorite God. bit. Yeah. Where he says... Just to be clear, your exact words to me were, 
please shoot it in my twat. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so good because it's like builds and builds like this like dramatic scene in a play where it's like they're arguing about these grand themes of like, are we free or are we running? And a child is a child or it's a symbol. And then Brian K. Vaughn flips it all on its ear (laughs) by apparently revealing the way Alana asked for Marco to come inside her, which is already normalizing something that we talked about. Like they're normalizing sex talk, right? Like they're talking about the fact that like he ejaculated inside her. But apparently the way that she asked for it was to say, (laughs) please shoot it in my twat, which is just, I... I, the writing on this is, I've run out of adjectives to describe how much I like it. Yeah. Uh, sexy Alana. She can't be trusted, folks. <laughs> Don't trust Alana a word she says. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Abu? What What was the, the line or writing from these chapters that really, really stuck with you? Mine's pretty quick. Yours is poignant and funny and great. Mine is a little bit horrific and a little <laughs> bit funny. I loved the moment where that poor mouse medic is taking care of Prince Robot IV on the battlefield. And the mouse says, quote, no joke, this is going to hurt like fuck for a second, end quote. Right before the mouse jabs Prince Robot with this mechanical shot thing. And this, for whatever reason, it's a horrific scene. There's bloodshed everywhere. We talked about how brutal this presentation of war is, but this line in the middle of all of this, legitimately made me laugh out loud because I also just imagined it in the mouse's sort of squeaky little voice. (laughs) Oh my God, I hadn't even thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) And the fact that like explosions are going off, Prince Robot IV is literally bleeding out. His like CPU circuits are falling out of him. And this little mouse is just like, no joke, this is going to hurt like a fuck for a second. And... That voice combined with just the juxtaposition of the line in the scene made me just burst out laughing. And it's moments like this, these like moments of levity crammed into scenes of horror and bloodshed Mm -hmm. and death is what draws me to this story and is what is so incredible about the way Brian writes this story. And as a complete aside... I kind of wish my doctors would be this brutally honest with me sometimes, <laughs> you know? Like sometimes yeah. you go to the doctor and they're about to give you that one shot that makes your entire arm numb. And they're like, don't worry, it'll be real quick. It'll be fine. I just kind of want my doctor little, to be like, little nah, pinch. Abu. It'll be a little pinch. <laughs> right. Just a pinch, just a pinch. No, I just want my doctor to be like, Abu, hold your breath. This is going to hurt like fuck for a second. <laughs> <laughs> just no, be totally. real with me is all I'm asking. So RIP to the mouse medic, they were a real one, and they kept it honest to the end. Do, do you want your doctor to do it in the voice, too? Like, <laughs> the Mickey Mouse voice? Like, huh? No joke. This is going to hurt like fuck for a second. Huh? I think if Mickey Mouse is my doctor, I have other things to worry about than a little shot. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> oh, man. Well... That brings us to the end of this episode. A real whirlwind. Yeah. And we're only through chapter 12. For the next episode, make sure that you've read through chapter 15. Uh, There's some amazing stuff that's coming. I'm excited to read it again. I don't know how you're feeling, Abu. I'm stoked. I can't wait. I mean, that starts volume three, right? We start the next Mm -hmm. arc of this story.
Well, friends, two minds can sometimes improve the odds of a podcast survival, but there are no guarantees. So leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and now on Spotify. Spotify's got ratings now. Please leave us five stars there as well. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network at loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Music on this show was composed by Lawrence Kelly, who makes all kinds of amazing stuff. You can follow him on Twitter at produced by underscore LK. And if you're so inclined, you can follow Alan on Twitter at a Haberchak and me on Twitter at Abu underscore Zafar. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, podcasts are fragile things, but just like Alana, Marco, and Hazel, we'll all just keep on exploring and learning together.